0: and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast where we talk all things urban, demystify development and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host Belinda Barnett and today I'll be exploring demographic trends and how they influence the planning and development of Australian cities and neighbourhoods. It's a topic that's particularly relevant because on the 28th of June of this year, the 2021 census findings were released. And I'm really keen to take some time to understand uh, some of the key insights and learnings from those findings. To discuss this topic, we'll be crossing the border into Melbourne. Um, And just to our listeners, there may be some variations from the normal quality um, of the audio. I'm really delighted to be able to be joined today by Simon Questermacher, who is the co-founder of the Demographics Group and also the director of research with that group. He's also an acclaimed presenter and he's a regular writer for the Australian and the New Daily newspapers. So welcome, Simon. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Ah, Thanks for having me. Simon you're often uh, described as a rising star in the world of demography but I have to say after hearing you present um, I feel you have well and truly risen (laughs) and you're shining very very bright so it is really really great for you to be able to take the time to join us today. To start I was hoping that you could I guess give our listeners a bit of an introduction into what a demographer does and how the demographics group uses data to help shape policy, um, which in turn, I guess, informs uh, the decision-making around Australian cities and neighbourhoods.
1: Absolutely. So in in very general terms, um, you can describe a demographer in in, in two ways. The one way is the more uh, classical um, academic way. These are the demographers that actually create population projections that actually measure how many people live and um, where they live and they make you know, forecasts about birth rates and thereabouts. So that is the more academic, technical side of demographics. And then there is what we could call a business demographer. These are people like me that um, use demographic data and analyze demographic data in order to make sense of this big mess of numbers for um, governments and for businesses so that they can better understand um, their populations and their target audiences. So that's what that's what we do and how this falls into or falls into policy making is that we quite often work with local governments of of all levels of government locals are definitely our number one um, customer so we help them understand how their community has been changing how it will be changing and what sort of needs are occurring. And quite often with demographic data, we see problems arising clearly decades in advance. And quite often, it's frustrating in in my job to see that certain things are not being tackled. So there's the personal frustration. And of course, I would like to um, speak more directly um, with state and federal governments because some major issue uh, issues around population about housing um, about the aging of the population i'm quite shocked that we aren't tackling uh in a more direct way right now
0: Yeah, I'm really shocked to hear you say that too, because there is definitely a planning hierarchy that exists with policy making. And I mean, I'm quite surprised that you're when you say that like a major part of your work is coming from local government. And don't get me wrong, it's that's great. But given that local government policy is usually falling and a response to state government policy. Yeah, it, it is quite a shock that you aren't getting that breakthrough at, at that state level.
1: <laughs> yeah, but also here's the statistician talking. There is one federal government, there is eight state governments, and there's 555 local governments. So it's quite statistically <laughs> likely uh, that you end up in a, in a local government um, for your for your work. Um, and that said, in Australia, local governments are more powerful than they would be elsewhere around the world. So quite a bit in the planning um stages actually do rise and fall with the, you know, the ins and outs of of local government policies. So it is a surprisingly powerful, um, corner of of the political spectrum, um, which quite often flies under the radar. People can definitely name um, their prime minister. Um, Now, after COVID and after all those press conferences, I'm pretty sure everyone can name their state premier, which wasn't the case beforehand. But I would say very few people know their um, state MP or their, their local MP. And people have absolutely no idea who's running their local government. So you have a surprisingly powerful political class. That goes absolutely unaccounted for.
0: Yeah, and it's, and it's really interesting because certainly my experience in um, community engagement is that people don't tend to get involved in local policy making until they have, they're confronted by an issue, whether it's a development that's going up within their neighbourhood that they don't like. Um, but it's not really until that, that point that often many take the time to become engaged in that local policy making
1: exactly and so you end up with a um, local government culture or a perception of local government which is very reactionary so therefore the perception of local governments being um, the, the NIMBY level uh, of, uh, of of policy is, is, is quite annoying and it makes sense you know so a couple of neighbours are annoyed by a 5G tower coming up they're annoyed by uh, some parking garage coming up or whatever it is uh, and then interest forms around this but it's not a pro proactive policymaking uh, that says, well, now we look at demographic data, we understand that this is increasingly becoming a family suburb. So where do our childcare facilities come from? And so on. This is a more complex issue. And it is of course very hard to get people engaged for something that is not immediately pressing to them. That would, however, massively help their, their suburb simply because people have busy lives and they can't, you know, just, you uh, um, Hang out and look at demographic data all day, every day, uh, as, as I do for fun. Um, so that's that's hard to ask. But there is much more um, community engagement that can be um, snatched up from from the local population. And in, in a way, every now and then I see really great case studies of um, uh, you know, democratic engagement into policymaking. Um, Victoria forced, <laughs> kindly asked, nudged uh, every local government area to write a policy, you know, a, a vision uh, that those big 20, 40 visions that every local government area wrote, they are quite fantastic. They use approaches of uh, deliberative democracy where people ask, um, to hear feedback uh, from the local community that is really representative of the folks that live in the community, all those things are really cool. And as long as you fold those those mechanisms back into um, policy decision-making, then you have a very, very good tool. If this is done correctly, I'm always very happy with uh, local governments being strong. That said, you hear lots and lots of absolute nightmare stories of Australia of how you can't even manage a clear way through a road. Sydney Road in, in Melbourne comes to mind um, where the local government, it's two or three local government areas involved and they can't um, sort out amongst them uh, to say yay or nay to a clear way. And that stuff is just shocking. That is small scale resources wasted of a government area. There is. Uh, these are questions where a larger body like the Greater London London Planning Authority would be helpful. That can just make a decision, whether this be a smart or dumb decision. It uh, doesn't matter. It's just that we actually get out of the gridlock of not getting stuff done.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting too because you say that a number, like a lot of the findings that you, um, you, you are taking from the, from the data sets, you know, you you could almost, you're for, you can forecast decades in advance. You can see problems arising decades in advance. Is another problem that you think that we're sort of having to deal with in government is, are the short political terms that either local government or state government or in the federal government are in power for, you know, usually three to four years. And hence you can get, it's really hard to get the traction um, once a policy is made, it's, it's. you know, you don't always have that certainty that it's going to actually stay in place and and, and get that, I, I guess, get the lo- or, or experience the longevity that's often needed to experience the outcomes of that policy.
1: Absolutely. And so the first issue that comes to mind is, of course, infrastructure here and the way that we're doing infrastructure planning. Uh, that it's a political issue where one party says yay to a tunnel or whatever it is. And then the next one says nay. And then there's back and forth. And the meantime, consultants like me get a couple of dollars. If they consult on the project, that's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. It's it's pointless. Um, I can see a system working where a body like Infrastructure Australia gets much more power and where the political class, you know, be the state or federal, um, they set the, the size of the bucket of infrastructure dollars that are being handed out. And then Infrastructure Australia, as a really technocratic, independent um, body, they decide where infrastructure goes. Otherwise, you have uh, big problems that occur that really uh, bother me, where we've seen Melbourne, again, my, my hometown, um, saw lots and lots of development over the last two decades in the West. We didn't build infrastructure at the same rate. uh, That created traffic bottlenecks, really unhappy people. uh, And now the infrastructure that we built uh, after the fact uh, essentially is much more expensive than it need be. Um, So that's a nightmare. So surely enough we learned out of those mistakes uh, because we now have big fat uh, growth corridors in the north and in the east. Surely we now start with infrastructure um, to make it cheaper, to make it more efficient, to build a better Melbourne and the answer is we won't. We we can't even do this. It's it's systemically impossible because the party in power, in this case a, a Labour government, they would be absolutely killed at the uh, at the polls uh, at, the, at the at the booths if they built infrastructure to a future currently non-existent population instead of building population to the desperately, uh, you know, the, the seekers, the infrastructure seekers in the West who've been forgotten for two, two decades. That's a nightmare. So you have to build it there. So you, you will forever play catch up. Um, and I, it's not for me to say whether there should be infrastructure in the West or there shouldn't, but an independent body could actually say where money would be better used and where people are, would be better serviced. And we're not doing this. We are at the whims of what is more politically um, digestible. Um, and that's annoying.
0: I'd like to um, maybe switch tacks a little bit and and most probably go to a topic, which is uh, the last presentation that I heard you give, uh, which was down in Hobart at the Property Congress, um, where Urban Talk, we were a major sponsor of of that Congress, and we were lucky enough to sponsor your presentation. Now, you are renowned for quirky presentations, which is really great. You bring, I think you bring numbers (laughs) and data sets to life, and um, you certainly did that at Congress. Um when you spoke about I guess settlement patterns um with your lovely analogy um using breakfast and eggs <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've got to say, I every time I go into a cafe on a Saturday morning and order breakfast, now I think of your presentation. You know, particularly, I'm a bit of a scrambled egg sort of person, so I, I immediately think of your presentation. <laughs> but I was hoping that you might be able to share with our listeners that um, egg analogy, why you came up with that analogy, and how it relates to the changes that we are now seeing in um, settlement patterns as a result of COVID-19?
1: Absolutely. So what I pointed to was that before COVID, our capital cities, really is the case for every capital city, very much looked like a fried egg where all the big, fat, juicy, delicious uh, jobs are clustered in the egg yolk and um, the population is distributed in the egg white across the yolk. And people, in order to avoid the soul-destroying commute or at least shorten the soul-destroying commute, were willing to pay a premium to have housing near the city center. That means the rich folks lived reasonably close to the city center and the poor folks lived on the outer edge of the, um, of the, of the egg. Um, And that's what we dealt with. That's what our cities look like from a transport perspective. That's a nightmare because everyone commutes into the city in the same time in the morning out of the city at the same time that um, All but guarantees gridlock in the system Um, and the poorer you are the longer you have to do a soul-destroying commute uh, so everyone is unhappy particularly the poorer people are unhappy Um, that of course was driven because of the location of the jobs because the jobs dictated where people had to work and then this led to where people chose to live all of a sudden we had the pandemic and the pandemic allowed us to take um, over 50% of the jobs in a city that was in full lockdown like Melbourne um, from the office towers into spare bedrooms onto kitchen benches. And it really was like taking a spatula to the fried egg and creating a scrambled egg city where the jobs are not clustered in the city center anymore, but they are much more evenly distributed across the, uh, the frying pan, if you will. Um, And what does that do to us? Well, all of a sudden you don't need to commute. That's somewhat interesting. There will still be in the long run, um, a cbd so we're not we now it's not the time to board up the office towers in the cbd and just sell all your stock that you have into those dwellings don't do it um, in the long run the cbd will be okay but we will transition from five percent of the population working from home before COVID to somewhere like 15 16 18 percent of the population working from home on any given day that means fewer cars on the road fewer people in trams on any given day um, that means more daytime population in suburbia Um, you know it touches many many impacts you don't buy your cafe at the hipster cafe in the inner city you buy it in your suburban cafe Um, you don't go to a physio uh, in the city center you go to your local physio so retail uh, and and certain services, they redistribute a bit. You flush your toilet at home rather than the office tower. So water services need to make, uh, you know, need to keep this uh, in mind. So there's a bit of a reshuffling happening there. Um, And then, of course, once you worked from home for a little while, you understand that's quite nice. I actually like this. So maybe I will Maybe I will not want to go to the office every single day. And if I don't go to the office anymore, every single day, maybe just one or two days, maybe not at all anymore, why would I want to pay a premium to live near the city center? That lost its attraction to me. Um, So all of a sudden I can move to either more affordable areas, which would be the urban fringe, which would be suburbia, which would be the regional towns surrounding my city center. So that's nice. So all of a sudden you have the population redistributing, reshuffling based on COVID. So this is the big way of how COVID-19 impacted our settlement Patterns. Um, wow, it was only the pandemic that really changed the ways that we live in, in, in Australia. Well, it's part of the uh part of the change. This trend would have occurred anyways, to a lesser degree, um, even without a pandemic, simply because the millennials, which are the biggest generation in Australia, these are people born in the 80s and 90s, they are now reaching the family formation stage of the life cycle. And they are still um, you know largely clustered in the hip inner cities um, as couples in one and two bedroom apartments. They will now bit by bit at 1.7 kids to their families, and they will want a spare bedroom with a door to keep the kids and the cats out of their zoom calls. Um, that means well, where are they going? They can't stay in the hip inner suburbs because there are no three or four bedroom dwellings available. They can't go to the middle suburbs because that's where the baby boomers live as empty nesters in three to four, even five bedroom homes. And they're not downsizing. The downsizing of the baby boomers is a game for the 2030s when the baby boomers become um, old and frail enough to actually stay. Um, you know, see the family home as a physical hazard, as a nuisance. Um, at the moment, they don't bother. Australians only downsize when they have to. Lots and lots of Australians will tell you stuff like, I want to be carried out of my family home. So that means the downsizing really in the 2030s, that'll be a crazy decade on the property market, the 2030s, because you have the big fat Baby boomer generation selling homes at scale, either because they want to downsize or because they're being carried out of those homes. And then there is a big uh, big market movement happening. So buckle up for the 2030s. In the 2020s, the millennials that want housing, that need housing, they have to skip the middle suburbs largely. They have to go to the urban fringe, to the greenfield development sites where new housing is being developed, or they might as well skip the, um, the urban fringe and go to regional Australia. <sighs>
0: Oh yeah, that was a lot to get, lot to get out. Um, so in the work that you're doing with local government, how are you seeing, are you seeing like local government sort of now looking to respond to this with changes? I, I guess at their level in housing policy, are they being, particularly with regional centres, are they being more open to looking at creating more housing within regional centres? Um, even maybe looking at introducing density into some of the regional centres or are they being very sort of anti-development?
1: I would say they... Th- they, they do. When I speak to local government, they see this is their number one crisis because even if you add just a few hundred more people than expected to a regional housing market, the market goes through the roof. Those markets got used to a certain relatively low level of development over time and you, you go above this and immediately rents go up. That is not a problem. House prices go up too, but uh, we now so who, the regional population whose house is worth a bit more Well, nice for them, but it doesn't really change their lives. Um, The low-income renters in a regional town, they're being priced out immediately. So that's a nightmare. The low-income local population that still lives with mom and dad that might want to go and live in the region, their equation all of a sudden doesn't really work anymore. Where where should they live? Okay, so for a little while, you just stay at home a bit longer, but sooner or later you hit a a problem. And so any kind of housing problem is best being solved by adding more housing supply. And so slowly the regional markets will react to this. So this is something where I see at least a bit of a change when I talk to local governments, that that local government areas understand that they need to make more land available. So that's it's zoning issues. Sometimes it's rezoning uh, for them. That just means that... Now that regional towns will get more and more knowledge workers, um, the whole idea of, you know, mixed zoning becomes actually quite easy. Why wouldn't you have a bit of an you know suburban accountant, uh, you know, who moves to regional Australia? Why wouldn't they be allowed to open shop wherever they want? So all of this. So there's a bit of rezoning happening. They will need to make more land available. Uh, that kind of work. So let's let's assume our local government area manages this well. Fair enough. Good on him. Um, so they do their part. Um, they might even build the relevant roads and pipes and whatever they need. Um, But then all of a sudden you have the local developers entering the picture. Those local developers got used to a certain level of activity. Um, They have the workforce to deal with that activity. So now there is heaps more activity. So they go, well, no worries. We'll just hire people and build more staff. Well, congratulations. This is where the skills shortage hits, which is the single biggest issue that I'm talking about at the moment to people is that Australia, as a migration nation, we very much got used to migrants coming to Australia. In net terms, we took in 180,000 net new migrants every single year before the pandemic. And instead of doing this in the first year of the pandemic, we lost 90,000 people. So that's already a difference of 270,000 people in just one year. And on top of this, a second year of the pandemic and then a slower migration intake for a couple of years after this. And we have a skills shortage that will be with us for the next uh, little while, for sure. Uh, then we will amp up migration again to previous levels as we accept that we really lack my, uh, uh, workers, we need more, we, we we will amp up our intake a little bit that works for three, four years. And all of a sudden we reach in the 2030s, we reach an issue where we realize that globally speaking, the um, total number of humans of working age are starting to shrink. So. As of the 2030s, workers will be an ever rarer commodity to getting hold of. That means that I think it's quite likely to make a claim like the 2020s, um, maybe the 2030s, probably the 2020s will be the last decade where we can get migrants for free. After this, every migrant will get a $50,000 tax credit or something like this to come to Australia. uh, Simply because we are running out of workers soon. In, in the world, uh, so overpopulation is definitely not an issue now let 's bring this back to our local uh, government area, where all of a sudden um, our little worker, our little uh, developer doesn 't have the workers to build the housing well so what do you do well you uh, well, can you can you rise? can you offer higher higher wages not not all that much, a tiny bit maybe um, but especially if you start with low skilled Work. Why would low-skilled workers relocate to your neck of the woods if prices are rising there? So that's a problem. And multiply this problem times 555 local government areas, and you see where people are scrambling for workers. So all of a sudden, we need to accept things like automation is our friend. Automation, AI, uh, robotics are great. There's no way in hell that in the next five years, in five years' time, you will go into a big sporting stadium and a human is checking your ticket. That is a laughable idea. The idea that in a big sporting stadium, um, a, a human will pour your beer is laughable. So all of these things will get automated. That said, certain industries don't have that, uh, you know, that le- uh, that luxury uh, to do this. So therefore, I am probably betting on the development industry, on the housing industry, finally to be disrupted. This is a sector that has not been disrupted for decades, really ever. You know sure there is real and it looks kind of funky and small innovation here and there. I don't want to take uh, anything away from people that, that work in the field, but overall the sector functions the way, the same way that it always has. And I don't think you can do this. Uh, in, in a time of um, rising costs for absolutely everything, in an environment of shrinking workforces, the development of property, uh, residential, commercial, needs to become heaps more efficient. Period.
0: So hopefully, we'll see it'll open up more innovation. Uh, is there anything that you've seen happening overseas um, in the sectors, the construction sectors overseas, that you see being introduced or Australia following in the footsteps of?
1: So I'm slowly seeing uh, the trend towards people taking the free fa- uh, free, f- free, fabricated homes uh, issue more seriously. And it makes perfect sense to me. You have all the workers on site. We we waste endless productivity from workers, meaning construction workers traveling from A to B. Um, then we know you are missing a plumber and then the project is on hold. The inefficiencies in the system, particularly when we're short staffed, uh, are ridiculous. So I think if you have a prefab home, and this is not just cookie cutter, the same thing, but really have the elements, you know, have fully uh, functioning um, walls that come, you know, that are being built to your uh, needs in a factory. And then boom, 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 you build a house in a week.
0: I was interested. I think I can't remember what I was looking at. I, I think it was something on the, um, on the internet, but uh, yeah, 3D printers building houses.
1: This is I'm I'm not an expert in the field, but the three 3D printing I don't see the benefit from. Is that faster? Is this a way of 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 really providing energy efficient houses? Uh, this is becomingly reasonably expensive. So, Diaz, how do we provide housing fast and at scale and printing? And also, remember the way that we do development in Australia. A 3D printer, it's hard probably to squeeze on a on a. Two hundred square meter lot, um, which is where most of the development would need to take place, because we are still doing lots and lots of um, densification by just bulldozing a quarter acre block and building townhouses, which has many many issues in their own right. Um, so there is lots more to unpack.
0: Yeah, no, there is, and and I think regulation is another thing that's going to to like get to that prefabrication to be able to deal with, you know, planning regulation. I mean, there's so much regulation at the moment. Um, You know, we've seen lots of of issues sort of coming up in the construction centre, particularly with some of the density developments, you know, things to do with The facades, um, materials and facades and, you know, issues with those. So, yeah, I think the whole being able to safely, I guess, modify red tape to allow, um, I guess, these new construction methods to actually open up and to be able to meet this supply crisis. Yeah, it, it is. It's a very challenging time.
1: Very much so. We're at a a state where we need to tighten red tape and where we need to loosen red tape. So this whole thing needs to be completely overhauled. Uh, Remember that, according to my construction context, some of the townhouses that we built on top of the bulldozed quarter acre blocks, they tend to have a life expectancy of 35 years. Which is obviously an environmental uh, scandal, uh, but it's also economically dumb because right now we are rich. A rich country, and we should use our wealth to invest it in a lasting way that lasts generations. You know, I want to point you as a positive case study to the absolutely horrible uh, failed economy of Argentina. Argentina, a hundred plus years ago, was the richest country on the planet. Um, They got rich with cattle, beef, and whatever, Um, but they invested their money. In the time, at the time and built massively, really strong, beautiful, um, medium to high density houses in their big cities. This housing stock, even though it got largely ignored um, over the last decades, is still providing a failed economy, somewhat failed economy with recent decent quality uh, of life. So that's helpful. We have we failed to do so. We are we, we need so much of our limited um, worker base. Uh, we need to put them aside to renovate our crappy housing stock. Uh, that is not smart in an environment of 20, 30 years where we need them down the track. Um, and this will be, the global workforce will be shrinking like crazy in 30 years. Um, so we can't have them, uh, we can't have workers earmarked for stuff that's avoidable. So that's a, that's a problem. So high quality housing stock, this is where the red tape is needed, that you build houses that actually stand the test of time. So a house that can't plausibly be set to last for 100 years should not be allowed to build anywhere. And most of your local government areas uh, would be shying away from this uh, because then housing costs would go up even more in the short term, even though it would be uh, orders of magnitude cheaper in the long run.
0: It's scary, actually, when I hear you when to hear you articulate all of this and, and these insights, it, uh, it it really is. It's a discussion that needs. Well, it's a topic that needs much more discussion, um, and particularly, you know, as you said at the outset, at the state government level um, and and national level to to really provide that overarching direction. Um, I wanted to just like touch on the 2021 census results I guess for you uh, for those coming out you must feel a little bit like a kid in a candy shop um, getting the census findings
1: <laughs> yeah and, I, and I, I I did the math it is five times as good as Christmas Christmas comes around every year that thing census data release day comes around every five years so it's a wonderful day um, because we finally get to understand what Australia's actually Looking like, and I was I was quite pleased uh, that the census this time around was run during a pandemic.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting having it online. Actually, I thought that was very efficient.
1: Exactly, we had seventy nine percent of the of the Australian population filling this thing out online, which uh, allowed us to publish the data sooner uh, than in, than in previous uh, census times. So that's that's pretty nice, uh, a little bonus. So you know, for all the laggards uh, out there. At the next census, definitely choose the online option Um, that helps everyone. Um, It makes data easier to manage. It makes replication errors uh, disappear and it just gives me data faster. And that's the most important thing.
0: From what you've been able to review, um, are we looking vastly different to to how we looked five years ago?
1: Um, In certain ways, yes. Uh, and let me start with the most positive observation that I could immediately find by looking at the data is that we increased the indigenous population by 25% uh, it, between the last two censuses. And that wasn't driven by birth rates. You don't create uh, you know 150,000 people or whatever it was uh, by birth. Uh, Having births, high births. What this meant is that people, more people, were willing to self-identify as indigenous than before. In in my reading, this says that more people uh, were safe, felt safe enough, felt proud enough um, to to declare their own heritage on a somewhat publicly available forum, and that's wonderful. That's great news. There is still plenty of stuff to be done to to close the gap. Um, sure. Fair enough. Um, But we're moving into the right direction because that gap is closing. Even if you look at the indigenous data and you look at incomes, there's still a ridiculous income gap, but it's narrowing. So lots and lots of things are moving in the right direction. Um, You know, I can say this because I'm not personally involved. Social change for the people involved always feels slow. If you if you zoom out, though, and look at data, it now actually takes up uh, pace, which is very, very positive, even though people on the ground might not share that opinion.
0: And and what are some other insights? I'm I mean, certainly from the some of the headlines um, that have come out. You know, there was sort of uh, I guess some um, one that stood out that the millennials and baby boomers were now sort of uh, you know head on head. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know. Um, What what that? How how do you see that translating? I know you spoke a little bit Mm. about um, a bit about that in terms of home home ownership and housing needs. Um,
1: I think uh, the millennial uh, stint uh, that the uh, ABS pulled there at the it was so it's the first time that I've been unhappy with the ABS uh, to to be quite frank, um, because the way that we use generational data uh, is a bit is a bit vague when does a generation state when does it begin uh, so that's that's up in the air and there are two plausible ways of doing this one is the is the social way Of doing this. This is where people say, okay, uh, people it always starts with the baby boomers in the after the end of the second world war. And they say, Well, when do they end? And you try to find some sort of socially significant marker where generation ended, and then you move on, and you do this for every generation. And then one generation spends 13 birth years, another generation spends 21 birth years. And if you do this, you can make social observations. I'm happy with that. Uh, but any numerical observation, like wow, this generation is bigger than the other one is a bit dumb. Of course, a generation that has 21 years in it is bigger than one with 13. I find that utterly uninspiring. And the ABS, because uh, generational stuff is such a vague data set, never touches them. There's the other option uh, that does a generation starts every 18 years. So you start with the baby boomers in 20 in 1946, and every 18 years you you give it a new a name and it's a new generation. That makes an awful lot of sense if you are interested in life cycle uh, related things, um, which is the data that I use. 18 years for each generation, uh, because that allows you to say that you know the millennial generation is about to hit a certain stage of the life cycle, retirement or whatever it is, and. At the, at the same time, uh, when the baby boomers did this, they looked different, and you can make really nice numerical comparisons there, and everyone is happy. But the ABS, just somebody in their um, PR department said, "Ah, oh, let's let's publish uh, something about the generations." That always worked. It had really good media attention, so it was a big success. Therefore, uh, but so some of the generations got 15 years, uh, the baby boomers got 20 years for whatever reason, um, and so the millennials have long been larger uh, than the baby boomers by any interesting um, measure so it's a bit of a point um, there but the larger truth still remains is that the impacts of the baby boomers on society are on the way out because the baby boomers at uh, the oldest baby boomer now is uh, 76 years of age that means in 10 years time even the last baby boomer will be of retirement age you know they'll not all be retired they'll still have um seeds on company boards, they'll have talkback radio shows, but overall, overall, the impact of baby boomers is already being handed over to the next generation. That's the small Gen X generation. You know, we still assign them the same years, 18 years, but Gen Xers, the next generation, are really small um, because they were born in the 60s and 70s, and just when they were meant to be born, the contraceptive pill was introduced. That kept the generation down. In the 20, uh, 1970s, uh, no-fault divorce was introduced. That meant no additional babies were added to unhappy marriages. And the 70s was a, gen- a-, a decade of low migration intake. So you have a very small generation. And so they're called the forgotten generation because when we talk about generations, we just skip them. <laughs> uh, and that's a big, that's a big mistake. Um, Because right now, the 2020s is the decade to shine for Gen X, because there is a certain level of seniority built into lots and lots of positions. You become um, prime minister at 54, you become CEO at 52. This is smack bang at the center of the age bracket that uh, Gen X finds itself in. So that means that Gen X values um, are being uh, amplified. Uh, They take... Positions of power, they set strategic, they set policy directions. And so they are actually, funnily enough, even though they're the smallest generation, the most important generation, at least for the 2020s, when Gen X retire, they will very much not be the most important generation anymore. Um, and already we've seen this. Already every state premier is Gen X. So we've already handed the reins over to the next uh, generation tech technically speaking, uh, Dominic Perrottet in, in New South Wales uh, is even a millennial, uh, but I'm counting him as an exer because he doesn't quite have that millennial vibe <laughs> to him. So
0: what's a millennial vibe? When you, What's a Gen X vibe?
1: <laughs> uh, so so the, the, the Gen X values, we want to remember that Gen X is the first generation that saw their moms enter the workforce. So it's the first generation, what is absolutely normal for, for women to work. So they think that's normal. So gender equality is their pet project. The other pet project that they have is, 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 is work-life balance. So equality and work-life balance. That's the Gen X um, peak uh, projects. And so you will see those issues um, massively improve over this decade. Um, My big, bold prediction is that by the end of the decade, the gender pay gap will be completely closed. There's absolutely no way in hell that under a Gen X leadership and a workforce that is 75 percent millennial or Gen Z, uh, the younger generations, um, that you can pay men and women doing the same work, different dollars. It makes no sense. It will disappear. I'm, I'm definitely serious about this. There is, a, there is a legal asterisk to this comment, though, is that I'm talking about the gender pay gap, not the gender income gap. The gender income gap is where we pay predominantly female professions in the caring or education sectors uh, no money. That will not be fixed, um, to, to, be, to be quite frank. Overall, good news that I made the mistake of leading with the positive news and ending on the <laughs> negative news. But that's, uh, that's on me. <laughs>
0: Well, I must say too. I, I guess that we have sort of learnt about, I guess, uh, adapting um, our work environments as a result of COVID. I guess, given what you've just said about, you know, Gen Gen X and 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 millennials in that management environment to achieve this work life balance, they'll be their their thinking will be much more progressive in in taking on new workplace environments.
1: Oh, absolutely. So with baby boomers. Leaving the workforce, moving into retirement, the idea of strict hierarchies in an organization, ooh, that will that will fizzle away. So we will see much flatter organizations. Um, people in the business world, they won't be too surprised to hear that. Uh, but that also, uh, you know, translates to charity organizations to community organizations that might rely on volunteers, uh, that might rely on millennials as being the next big wave of, of volunteers. And uh, good luck with that. Good luck trying to find volunteers for a stiff, uh, crusted uh, organization that, that has uh, very hierarchical structures. It, it won't work. Uh, it's the same for governmental um, engagement.
0: Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, like, what does it mean for the government bureaucracy?
1: It just means you need to flatten. It just means you need to have flatter, more agile uh, structures in place where you can get uh, quick input from the community in a very, very simple way that always operates on their terms, not on your terms. The idea that a government gets away with something like we offer you opening hours of nine to five, that's an insult. A government area should should be chased out of town if you offer this. This stuff is yesteryear. This is offensive to workers. This is offensive to families where both, cup, uh, both partners go to work and we still find this. Those governments need to be stopped It's just that simple. Uh, These are nightmares that are still occurring. It's, uh, yeah, I can't even, you know, we see I'm getting outraged here, but this is yesteryear uh, and we're accepting this because there is no other way. And this is essentially small dictatorial mindsets um, at work. So if you, you should close your offices uh, Monday and Tuesday. Well, that's cool, but open at 6am to uh, 10pm for the rest of the week. You need to actually do work and do provide services to the people that bloody put you in power. It's this kind of stuff that needs to change and people need to think outside um, the box. And again, increasingly we will move this way. But in the meantime, you will just make people hate government and hate politicians. And that is the single worst thing that we can have. This is the backbone of our democratic structures. Um, The whole idea that we hate politicians, that we say stuff like uh, politicians earn too much money is also laughable. Politicians earn bugger all. Uh, this is a, a narrative that needs to change. If you are in politics for money, you are stupid. You should, as a as a mid level accountant for a big bank, you earn heaps more than than the prime minister. It's it's just stupid, and so this needs to uh, move away. So our stereotypes need to be updated. Um, I'm happy with having stereotypes about incapable politicians, whatever. But you can't just claim that your politicians are incapable if you don't even manage them on the local level, if you don't even are in the know about who your local politicians are. So we do need more civic engagement and we do need to make civic engagement easy and we need to make it attractive. And at the moment, we are not doing all that much to make that happen.
0: No, I, gr- I agree with you. Well, we, as you know, we, we work in this engagement space and um, yeah, it, it's really hard to get breakthrough. I've got to say, you know, um, both with with the development sector, in the private sector, getting them to engage, um, government is quite regulated in how they want to engage, it's it's very frustrating. It's a space I've been working in for a long time, and um, it seems to be getting worse, not better, which is really surprising because technology is making it easier, which is sort of what we're trying to do, trying to digitise more practices. But yeah, just to change that mindset from it being, I guess part and parcel of how you approach you know design, how you approach development, How you approach policy making so that it's just so fully integrated, it's still very much sort of sitting in this sort of tick the box function. Oh, I've got to get this through, so I have to hold a put something on exhibition and hold a meeting, tick.
1: Exactly, and that's that's what happens in a in a really uh, hyper structured, um, hyper hierarchical system. Is you 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 live to tick the box. And, and that's a nightmare. And then you lose sight of the real big issues. My favorite big issue that I'm just so confused that nobody's talking about is the simple fact that by uh, 2037, that is 15 years from now, that is the equivalent to 2007. So what 2007 is to the past, that is um, uh, 2037 to the future. By then, Australia will be home to 1 million people over the age of 85 where where will those people live well how will we care for them um in what sort of cities will they live the cities the new suburbs that we're building there's one thing with legacy suburbs but the new suburbs that we're building are they livable for people 85 plus are we putting uh, are we really taking those 20 minute cities that we're talking about walkable cities are we taking those things seriously um Because already we are dedicating 15% of our workforce uh, to healthcare and social assistance. With an ever-aging society, and even though we can import lots and lots of workers, we're still aging rapidly, we need to dedicate even more of our limited workforce to the healthcare sector. And either we will do this forever and ever, and uh, somehow magically get more uh, people into the country to look after our old population, or we would just ensure that a million plus, or not all of them, but the poorer half of them, just have a really crappy retirement.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the age, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've sort of also worked in that aged care sector. It's distressing to actually see it. Um, and I also experience it at a, at a personal level because my mother is in aged care. And I just, I guess I just have one view, um, well, one of my views is that we need to actually start treating, I guess, employment in the aged care sector as an actual career. It seems to be treated as a transitional sort of um, employment and, and not actually building it as a career path with set steps where people have, I can see that they can rise through the ranks and um, and, and, and get a degree of professionalism associated with it.
1: Absolutely. So it's a growth sector. That's for sure. There's always something to be said for that. So if you offer quality aged care services, ideally in a mobile way, meaning that you allow people to live independently in their home for longer, you have a great business for life, period. There's no downturn ever um, there. So that's crucial getting these things right are we doing this seriously Um, and even the more and more we fail in making those cities walkable uh, where we create meeting spaces for people that are experiencing limited mobility and so on what we are doing is creating massive uh, aged uh, or old age loneliness because if if you can't easily access the city forget about people visiting you that's also, that won't happen. You will just create people slowly vegetating away in their homes in, 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 in splendid isolation. Uh, and there can be all those wonderful Zoom and what apps and whatever out there. More than anything, this will be an isolated, slow, prolonged death uh, that, that you move into. That's We're creating a nightmare from an aged care perspective. And planning, once again, this is a planning podcast, um, can help there. We can take this serious.
0: They, they can, yeah. I mean, I, I, still, I still can't believe, though, often, you know, with these new aged care developments, how local governments procrastinate over them. Um, you know, there seems to be this real fear to give them the, the stamp to to go through uh, the gatekeeper they're, they're very misunderstood aging is very misunderstood by a lot of local government planners I feel I don't know whether it's because they haven't actually they're of the age where they haven't had to yet uh, maybe personally deal with their parents going into aged care or haven't really been involved with their grandparents going into aged care they haven't had that personal experience so they actually don't understand how little accommodation there is out there um, particularly when you do need to live, have live-in care, you know, go go and live in a nursing home, whether you've got dementia or cognitive, um, yeah, decline or mobility issues, um, it's it's quite it's quite incredible how complicated it is to get these aged care projects through through government.
1: Exactly, and. We know how big those problems are from an order of magnitude perspective, uh, and I'm frustrated because I my job is to look decades into the future, and we see problems emerge that are not being fixed, um, and that's that's a problem. And we haven't even touched on the the largest problem yet, which is unaffordable housing. Um, so quite often, especially in the times of a skills shortage, uh, housing is a cornerstone um, issue uh, that always links everything together. If you live even in the nicest areas, so you look at beautiful areas like Byron Bay or Sorrento in, in Victoria, Very desirable locations to live in. Um, The rich and beautiful buy wonderful properties there. And now they have a massive, massive skills shortage. That means that the rich and beautiful can't have their houses cleaned. They don't have enough workers to buy uh, cool soy lattes uh, whenever they want. Um, That's a problem. So all of a sudden, those areas need to realize how important uh, key worker housing is. You know, public housing, key worker housing, um, both are needed. So that becomes a main need. And then a local government area in Byron needs to actually become really, really um, concerned about housing. Where do you put housing? Am I putting medium-density housing somewhere? Ooh, that's difficult. Ooh, I don't like that.
0: Yeah, they don't want it.
1: Exactly. So they, they don't want it. And there is something to be said for not wanting this because essentially um, those really beautiful areas are creating a bit of a Disneyland feel to them where you have a almost artificially beautiful environment. I don't want Byron Bay to look like the Gold Coast with skyscrapers left, right, and center. Uh, But you do need to think about medium-density housing somewhere in order to, at the very least, provide the workers that the local population actually needs. We do see this that if you say, well, local government isn't doing it, well, local government can only make land available. Then you need a developer to build housing there. Fair enough, they can do this. But who is building housing uh, in in the low end of the spectrum? Who would possibly do it? You'd be dumb as a developer, public as a a private developer, to build this housing because that's the low margin end of the market. The costs are going up. It's hard enough to make a profit as is. So obviously, you're going to service the top end of the market. There is no way that we are making housing more affordable for, let's call it, the lower third of the Australian population without a... um, Public-owned, state-owned public housing developer entering the picture. We we won't be solving the housing crisis. It will go. It will get worse, and that's a problem. And we're not fixing it because both major parties made it abundantly clear that they have no interest whatsoever to do anything to drive house prices down whatsoever. Um, So that's problematic, and I don't see how we create enough supply on the low end of the market uh, in the next decade.
0: Do you think there's a role there for local government?
1: Um, I think there is at the... You could say yes, but that means that the local government would have enough money available to act as a developer. I, more than anything, look to the private initiatives of doing this, um, is that we've been seeing this beautiful story of the Continental Hotel in, in Sorrento, big, fat hotel. It's gorgeous, a wonderful place. Definitely go visit if, if you're ever in Sorrento. Uh, what, a, what a place. Um, they advertised 80 jobs, apparently, got eight applications um So there's no workers because there's no housing, and why would a low income worker move to an utterly unaffordable area to do a low income job? Makes no sense whatsoever. So in Sorrento, they did just happen to have an an unused, run down uh, aged care home lying around, so the hotel purchased it as uh, to provide accommodation for their workers. These are, I heard, similar stories of Byron Bay. Um, so. These are the lengths that private employers go through, go, uh, go to, in order to have a housing for their staff. So, in a sense, this terrible housing market that we have um, essentially reignites the age of, um, uh, you know, of the patriarchic uh, um, titans of industry that create worker towns. Uh, for their for their minions Uh, we are seeing the comeback because if you run a large enough organization and you want low-income workers you need to provide housing because the market won't so there's there's that uh, end of the equation which again is fine for you know if you are one of the big dogs in town but what do you do if you are a reasonably small local government area and everyone you know the small Airbnb person, the small supermarket, everyone has the same issue that they can't find workers. I think we will see hopefully the emergence of more and more all of region, all of community approaches where everyone bands together and say, okay, guys, we really need this housing. How can we finance this? How can we build and finance this? This means we need new avenues of finance. We need new kind of people who develop this. Can the local developer that's used to building a couple of uh, three-bedroom homes, can they be uh, pulling off a four-story medium-density dwelling somewhere?
0: Maybe even you know, I'm not sure it would be in the the, the level, but even I, I guess the, the the concept of going back to like duplexes or like more dual occupancies, where people then can get a second income if they if they're putting a second dwelling on their on their lot, you know, reasonably priced, they they get the ability to have that second dwelling if there's that upside for the region.
1: Exactly, and and logic dictates that all of those planning regulations will be loose very very soon because towns will get increasingly desperate and people will get increasingly angry about this. And we long wished in Australia, we long wished for the decentralization of population. This was uh, written into in, in policy here for, for decades. It never eventuated. Uh, the concentration of population always got worse or got more concentrated, not worse, more concentrated uh, rather than more decentralized. And now all of a sudden we have the perfect storm together that we can actually decentralize population and nothing is happening.
0: And people want to decentralise, people want to move, which, you know, when the the Whitlam era did it and they had the Bathurst, you know, orange sort of growth area and and Aubrey wodonga it wasn't so, you know, there was more incentive that had to be put on the table to get people to decentralise, to get government agencies had to physically get up and go to those places. Now people are going there, they want to be there.
1: Exactly. And and that said, I do understand because I'm already hearing in the back of my mind, uh, the criticism of the argument is that all of these things are getting increasingly harder. To, to pull off these developments. The, the building costs are going through the roof and there are absolutely no forecasts that I think are plausible that suggest that prices are going to go down. So you will forever, not forever, but at least in the foreseeable future, operate with uh, elevated costs for anything that comes from overseas. And anything that is reasonably complex that we put into our buildings, into our businesses uh, in Australia is from overseas. We are a business that, as, as a country, we are a business that um, sells stuff that we dig out of the ground or that we grow on top of the ground. And we make really good money with it because, globally speaking, um, the stuff that we sell, food or metals or iron or whatever it is, um, will go up in price because they will increasingly be in short supply. So, that's good for us. So, our business model works there. But it will be, this is the end of, of, of cheap everything, uh, where we can just buy cheap electronics, cheap, blah, 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 from overseas, uh, because supply chains are constrained. Supply chains are more getting more, um, interrupted. The sheer volume of global trade goes down. That means the shipping costs per container unit, uh, go through the roof and won't go, won't go down. So you need to rethink what you do. And from a sustainability perspective, um, I'd say it's probably not too tragic because it means that we need to really double down on quality. so what you're not supposed to do is to tighten the belt and kind of hope that things will blow over because they will not ever. So that means you need to have, uh, you need to make cash available to invest, which might be hard because interest rates go up and so on. Um, So you need to make cash available to buy, high quality materials, high quality machinery, high quality technology um, in order to lengthen the replacement or the renovation cycles of your business. That will be the way forward. And that, again, is what I what I wished for when I talked about earlier about the quality of our housing stock. So maybe that issue is going to improve uh, as much as the uh, decentralization happened uh, by, by accident rather than by um, planning, if you will.
0: Well, do you think we are in uh, just to, 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 to bring it to start bringing it to a close because I'm conscious of your time? Um, are we in good hands then uh, with Gen X sort of uh, leading the charge forward they, they seem to uh, maybe uh, have be in the right sort of thought plane to uh, to maybe think outside the square as you say and and, and put some new and um, inventive ideas on the table.
1: So the thing that makes me optimistic about a Gen X leadership decade is that they are a hyper, pragmatic, hyper-practical generation. That's a generation that researches every feature of every leaf blower they purchase to death. So that means that's probably good. So uh, I, so I like that. I like, I like that element uh, um, a lot. It's a, it's a terribly hard decade to manage though. Um, And ideally this is a decade to look forward and to really understand what's coming. The good news is that Gen X uh, now have teenagers, as their as their kids, so they have the Greta Thunberg's of this generation as kids, and you do you've we've already seen uh, what this does um, politically speaking. So we've seen the the rise of the teal independents over the last um, election cycle, and these were all exclusively uh, Gen X moms with uh, with Gen Z teenagers, and. Education is a two-way street within a family. So those teenagers who um, were in turn the first generation that uh, grew up on smartphones, they never, ever look at their iPhones and go, wow, I can't believe I lived without that because they never did. They always had the whole information of the whole human history in their fingertips. So this is a generation, Gen Z, that is, that thinks global issues first, local issues second, they think systemically. And combine this, you know, there's a bit of knowledge transfer from the kids to the parents that are now in power that can hopefully steer us in the right direction. And we want to remember that globally speaking, with lots and lots of issues happening globally, Australia is still in a mighty full, a mighty good uh, position to weather the storm. Remember that we produce enough energy and food in-house in the country. There are very, very few um, countries on this planet that create both Uh, energy and food at scale so and we are one of them so that's that's positive
0: well i'm glad we're ending on a positive i've just got one (laughs) (laughs) i've just got one final question if you could ask if you could insert one question into the next census that you'd love australians to answer what would it be
1: Well, my uh, wishes almost got heard at this census uh, is that we finally asked healthcare questions. I would want a couple more detailed healthcare questions um, to be implemented in the census, simply because you want to remember what the census is for. The census is meant not just so that uh, nerds like I are happy and can draw beautiful charts and maps. That's not the purpose, as much as I wished it was. Um, The census is there to provide a social good for the country and to allow our economy to run efficiently and we can finally understand the mental health, the chronic healthcare conditions of Australians to actually provide decent uh, help. We can now ask questions about, is there a, a geographical element to mental health? Does sunshine make you more happy? I don't know, but soon enough when the full data set is released, we can answer these questions. We understand how much socioeconomic drivers impact mental health. That is huge.
0: Thank you so much, Simon. I I can't tell you how much I've appreciated and enjoyed our discussion today. And I've, yeah, I, I know that our listeners will take so much away from the conversation that we've been able to have. I really appreciate it.
1: Ah, thanks for having me. It's been a, a pleasure and great fun.
0: So if we've got any listeners that would like to get in touch with you, Simon, how do they contact you? Well,
1: the best and easiest way is always uh, LinkedIn. Uh, that's easy. Just Google this annoying, complicated, long last name and you'll find me um, <laughs> or our website, is uh, tdgp.com.au. That's short for The Demographic Screw. <laughs> Turns out you can't find a website with three letters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, anybody looking for a very engaging and topical speaker, I can thoroughly recommend Simon. Um, he is a joy to listen to, as you, you would have gleaned uh, from our podcast today. So best wishes, and I look forward to our next discussion, Simon. Take care. Ah,
1: fantastic. Thank you.
0: If you have a topic that you'd like us to address, please send it through via the Urban Talk website or email me directly at belinda at For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett, and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast.